The Word of Mouth podcast from NHPR is made possible with support from you, our subscribers. And from Heinemann, a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann, dedicated to teachers. One of our nicknames is Floor Walker because that's what we do. We walk the floors of the prison, you know, cell to cell, unit to unit, you know, tear to tear, however you want to explain uh, what the living quarters are like. Annie Wren is a correctional officer at the Men's State Prison in Concord. That's the security staff that works inside. She's done this job for 17 years. And then, of course, there's the dangerous parts of it as well, which is, you know, cell extractions and uh, dealing with inmate fighting or arguments and, you know, sometimes even staff arguments you have to deal with. So, I mean, it's endless. It's endless what we do. This kind of work isn't something Annie ever thought she'd do. When she was a single mom looking for work, she saw an ad in the paper. The job offered a salary, full medical coverage, and retirement with pension after 20 years. Today, Annie's middle-aged with blonde hair she wears with bangs. She's smaller than you'd expect, a little over five feet, and she says she tries to bring positivity and love to everything that she does, even her job at the prison. A job that forces her to work up to two to three overtime shifts per week. There were times, Jimmy, where I'm, I'm getting ready to go. It's 10 minutes to three. I'm waiting for my relief, and I've been plucked. Nope, you're staying. The, the not knowing leads to exhaustion and depression, period. The, the anxiety of it every day, every single day. Last September, she was asked by a supervisor to work an overtime shift. And for the first time in 17 years, she refused. Annie who has never had a single disciplinary issue at work before, received a letter of warning from the prison's administration. She responded with a letter of her own, a letter of rebuttal. In it, she said, the forcing of staff members is out of control, lacking professional boundaries and limits. The repetitive use of officers has become unacceptable, unsustainable, and frankly, inhumane. There was an offer to rescind that letter of, rebu- uh, letter of warning, but I left it as it was. I wanted that letter of rebuttal to be read by any future supervisors because this is my life we're talking about. This is Word of Mouth. I'm Jimmy Gutierrez. And I'm Daniela Ali. This is the fourth and final installment of our series answering listener questions about New Hampshire's prison system. Today, we're answering an anonymous question we received from a listener. One that really caught our attention. They wanted to know how many correctional officers, or COs, work in the men's prison, and how many per shift. And this is a story that you, Jimmy, reported on and are going to share. Right. And to get us started, we thought that it'd be nice to start with Annie's story, just to give uh, this question some context. Uh, To get into it, the men's prison and the Department of Corrections, or DOC, more generally has been significantly short-staffed for at least the past decade. In 2012, there was an audit of the men's prison and security staffing by the state's Office of Legislative Budget Assistant. That audit says for a prison that houses almost 1,400 men, the facility needs 371 officers to operate normally. It takes 277 officers to maintain critical operations, so basically to have the prison operate the way it was designed. And according to the latest DOC filings, the number of officers currently working in the Concord's Men's State Prison is 187. 
That's almost 100 fewer than the bare minimum that the audit required for the prison to operate. And the numbers I received from the department's commissioner said that on average for first shift, that's where there's the most prisoner movement uh, inside the prison, there are just 67 officers working. And for third shift, there are just 37 total correctional officers working, supervising almost 1,400 men. The backlash of such a staffing shortage is that officers like Annie Wren can be forced to work overtime almost every day that they come into work. Um, Some people really appreciate the overtime. I am one of the people that do not, and I do not sign up for overtime. So any overtime on the books for me is all forced. Annie says these staffing issues weren't nearly as bad 10 years ago. So what happened? And what effect does all that overtime have on officers? Who else is the staffing shortage affecting? And what's being done to address all of this today? The first time you put it on, you'll notice it. The pride, the sense of purpose, the feeling of truly being part of a team. This is a brand new video from the Department of Corrections marketing campaign, a campaign with a $325,000 budget. Start your career with the New Hampshire Department of Corrections and take control of your life. This was just one of the ways DOC has been trying to increase their staffing numbers. COs also won a 9% salary bump, increasing starting pay from around $37,000 a year to $40,000. The pay raise that they gave us has shown dividends as getting more people applying than before the pay raise was in place. Frank Logan is a correctional officer at the men's prison in Concord. He's also a union steward. Frank's about six feet tall, broad-shouldered, and when we met, his left hand was broken in a cast after an incident at work where he tried to stop a prisoner from injuring himself. I'm wearing a cast, but I'm also now back to work. Um, (laughs) I have a hard time just sitting at home. Uh, especially when we need everybody that we can get. According to DOC leadership, help is on the way. The state's Correction Academy, which is where all the state law enforcement also train, has 27 recruits in its current class, the second largest class in the past five years. But how much of this problem is of the department's making? And how much falls on the legislature? For years, one of the governor's easiest line cuts at budget time has been from corrections. From losing over 70 jobs under one-term Governor Craig Benson in 2003, to staffing issues being ignored by then-Governor Hassan, and a dragged-out, very public fight for a pay raise under Governor Sununu. And those cuts end up affecting working conditions. In 2009, the Lakes Region prison was closed due to budget constraints. Staff was let go, some were retained, and after a while, most were. But some of those men incarcerated were transferred to Concord, a facility that was already well overcrowded. Three years later, a class action lawsuit was filed on behalf of women incarcerated at the Goffstown prison. That lawsuit would close the facility altogether and lead to the opening of a $50 million women's prison in Concord. A prison that was delayed in opening in part because the legislature didn't fund all the positions needed. In fact, the new prison could sit idle for an entire year before it has the staff to accommodate the inmates. And in a state with such low unemployment numbers, the market for skilled workers is tight. The results are COs running on fumes and an expected overtime budget this year of $12.5 million. 
The irony here, of course, is that by not funding necessary positions at the prison or a campaign to entice candidates earlier, it's the state that still ultimately pays up. Our hours of overtime a month was at 12,000 hours a month. It creeped up to 15,000 over the summer per month. During that summer, that could have meant some officers were working 80 hours a week or more. Basically, overtime for every shift worked. Both the department's administration and the officers' union told me that new recruits are told multiple times throughout the hiring process that overtime is unavoidable. So get ready. A lot of the new hires, and I'm going to have a problem saying this because it's going to affect our recruitment, but we do tell them when they first come in, our overtime is through the roof. You should expect to work three, four, or five doubles in a five-day period. The department expects that only half of this year's 27 recruits are expected to still be on the job after their first year. And if that trend of officers leaving continues, we'll see a feedback loop, meaning that fewer officers equals more overtime and more burnout among staff. People become weary. They also become altered. So they become, let's say, hardened, callous, or they are just plain tired, can't think straight. So you can think of some beings that are very irritable, short-tempered, forgetful. This is Dr. Katerina Spinaris. She's a licensed professional counselor who provides training specifically tailored for correctional officers. Her organization, Desert Waters, has worked with California, Florida, and Illinois' Department of Corrections, just to name a few clients. She says some first responders, like police and firefighters, have made access to mental health programs a priority. But corrections are often overlooked. She's found that a third of COs demonstrate signs of PTSD. Another third show serious depression. And almost a quarter experience them both together. And there, it's no surprise. The amount of traumatic incidents they're exposed to and uh, is staggering. If you think of a career of 20, 30 years, it's unbelievable. Both directly, they are there in real time. They see it, they smell it, they feel it. Or they hear about it or read about it or see the pictures later or the video. And so they're saturated with traumatic material. Katerina has coined a term for this phenomenon, corrections fatigue. While COs at the men's prison have insurance and access to therapists and other mental health providers, a lot of people I talked to had trouble relating to people who haven't done the job. Instead, they've set up an informal underground network of support. Frank says he takes calls just about every day from coworkers who need to vent. Same with Annie. I got four phone calls from staff yesterday um, in the morning, two from the women's prison and two from the men's prison, seeking counseling for things that they're going through. And they come to me as opposed to something like EAP because I'm one of them and I understand where they're at. I understand what they're going through. EAP is the state's employee assistance program. It's set up to provide assistance to all the state employees and their families. The only caveat, it's a staff of five serving the whole state, none who have worked this job. Annie said she tried it a few years ago after struggling with depression, but it wasn't for her mental health. Um, But what I turned to them for was 
direction how to manage how much I was being forced and they really could not help me. You know, they can make suggestions, go see a counselor, go do this or that. That's not going to help me um, get home on time for supper every night. Annie says a lot of the calls she gets aren't for issues within the prison, but life outside of it. It's, they were forced over two or three days in a row. They're exhausted, they're arguing with their spouse, or their children are hurt, or they've got a sick dog and they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. They're torn between complying with what's requested of them, or demanded of them, not requested, it's demanded, you're forced. It's doing something against your will, and then your personal life. Katerina has also coined a term for the families of COs, silent victims. The people on the receiving end of all the forced overtimes, the traumatic workplace, and the untreated mental health issues. They see in the beginning, they only see, hey, we're going to have a steady paycheck, we're going to have benefits, and we're going to even have extra money from overtime and uh, shift differential. Yay, you know, everybody's excited about that, especially if they've gone through hard times before and they have no insurance, health insurance, etc. So they see the positives, but they have no idea, not a clue, how their life will be affected by shift work, by overtime, by the spouse, the partner coming home, shell-shocked, um, bitter, angry at their administration, their supervisors, their co-workers, and having nowhere to turn and no place to process that. They don't understand why all of a sudden now, why daddy is so short-fused all I did was I was riding my bike out in the road. He blew up on me. Well, you're not following the rules. I told you, you got to wear a helmet. You got to stay out on the road. I don't want you hurt. Frank Logan, the officer at Concord's prison, has been divorced twice. The last one he attributes to the job, the overtimes, and it corroding the relationship. According to the National Institute of Corrections, CEOs have one of the highest rates of divorce of any profession. They also have one of the starkest mortality rates, dying on average 12 years earlier than the rest of the general population. And then there are things that can't be measured, like missing the moments that make life worth living. I've missed birthday parties. I've missed celebrations because I was forced. Um, a couple of years back, I had big plans for Thanksgiving. I had 30 people come to my house and was forced. Recently, an officer pitched the department's administration for a program like Katerina's, tailored to help COs in distress. That request was denied, administrated, pointing staff to the state's EAP program. Katerina says by not addressing these issues, prisons create an environment where bullying and other forms of harassment can take hold. Or being really judgmental of people and developing racist ideas because of their bad experiences. No matter where I've gone, we see that. She also sees a culture of distorted masculinity which makes it much harder for people to open up and root out the issues they're dealing with. I'm not affected by anything. Nothing gets to me. I am good no matter what. I can get back on the horse no matter what. The, the, the joke of I don't have stress, I give stress, ha, ha, ha. And this thing of being invulnerable and emotionless. Other than anger, anger is thrown around quite a bit. It's considered, you know, you're big, bad, and tough. You're, you're scary when you're angry, and so it's a tool. But everything else is not allowed, like sadness, shame, uh, fear. For this story, I talked with a dozen current and former correction officers, all from either the men's or the women's prison. 
They told me about the marital issues that forced overtime has caused. They said it's impossible to make time and stay healthy outside of work. And they also told me that this problem doesn't just hurt them. It creates additional trauma for incarcerated men and women. If we could start, could you guys just start by introducing yourself? Um, Evan Panetta. I've been incarcerated for 14 years. Um, 15 months to get out. Excited to get all getting out. Yeah, my name is uh, Ollie Hooper. I've been incarcerated for going on 14 years, and uh, I still have a little ways to go. Evanor and Ali are part of the prison's Resident Communication Committee. It's a body that advocates for resident issues. Do you feel like, and you know, if you've been here for a minute, do you feel like there is a lack of staffing within, within the men's prison? Absolutely, without question. Evanor's baby face and sports a high fade. You would never guess he's 37. He calls it prison preserve. Ali is 10 years older with a wide gap between his front teeth. Yes, I mean, at 2.30, basically, the, the facility is a ghost town. Everything shuts down. When there aren't enough officers to fill jobs at the prison, places and programs are closed or canceled for residents. Things like educational classes and life classes that teach alternatives to violence. There's also less time to release energy in positive ways. I mean, we're meeting in the gym right now. That's, you know, the last couple of years, a lot of issues as far as getting the gym open in the evenings. You know, as far as physical activity, they rely on the gym, access to the gym. They rely on access to the ball field. And when the ball field's closed in the summer, uh, it really affects us. Staff is well aware of this. They're aware of the loss of programs. They're aware they have to cut corners to get through the day and that it comes at the expense of the men incarcerated. Here's Frank Logan again. But because we're so shorthanded, we run them through the child hall. You know, get in, get your food, sit down, shut up, eat, get up, get, so that the next guy can sit down. He says that a lot of guys stand while eating as officers are pushing the next group into the cafeteria. And the staff shortage isn't just affecting residents on a daily basis, but also their families. Visitation is one of those really sensitive subjects for the inmates. Obviously, it's their contact with the outside world besides phone calls. Frank says there have been several occasions where they've canceled visits. A few times they've even canceled Christmas parties because of a lack of staff. You know, every two weeks I get to see my kids and, you know, I count on those. And if I wasn't able to, I mean, that was, that's a, you know, it means I have to wait another two weeks. So it's a month since the last time I see my children. Uh, that would be painful. Evanor's never had a visit canceled, but he knows plenty of guys who have. Warden Michelle Edmark says she's only had to cancel visits a few times each year, always offering to make those dates up. There's also the issue of working staff up to 80 hours on their feet, adrenaline rushing, and asking them to be at their peak and keep residents safe. Unfortunately, you want the bodies there to keep people safe, but what you are getting, if a person has worked a third, fourth, fifth double, is only a body. They have no reactionary speed. Their their, uh, observational skills are greatly hampered. So what are you actually doing? Both Evanor and Ali have noticed staff unable to perform basic job duties. They said they've seen staff lethargic, irritable. They've even found officers asleep on the job. I think we're in unique positions, uh, given some of the the volunteer positions we work and our hours at work. Uh, so we'd run into them at you know end of third shift, beginning of first shift, and you'll catch uh, an officer sleeping in the bubble. The bubble, that's the enclosed control room. And this story of officers sleeping on the job was also confirmed to me by an officer at the prison. 
I also heard about an officer admitting he antagonized residents, goading them into fights just to get that adrenaline release. When I asked the Department of Corrections about this, if there was a connection between overtime hours and officer-involved incidents, I was told they didn't track that number because the number of those incidents is insignificant. Warden Edmark said bad things do happen, just not on an everyday basis. When it comes to getting resources to correctional officers, whether for better mental health care, more funding for staff, or money for a marketing campaign, there's one constant, from the legislature to the public. This job has an image problem. In the report that led to the CEO's pay raise, the advising lawyer said, there is simply no sympathy for convicted felons or support for those who guard them. Evanor Pineda calls it PMS. Prison movie syndrome. A lot of folks, they just fall into these traps of thinking what they see in the movies, in the news, on TV, that that's reality. I um, mean, you see, I guess on MSNBC or any of these channels, and they talk about well, locked up, and they go to all these max security prisons, like the worst of the worst, and they understand this is a C3 facility. C3 is medium security. Concord's prison ranges from C3 to C5, which is max security. Both Ali and Evanor said in their 14 years at Concord, officers have been a part of some of their biggest moments. Ali said he struggled through his first parole hearing. Afterwards, it was staff that helped calm him down, something he's never forgotten. And for Evanor, who got his high school diploma inside, he said a staff member ambushed him with a hug after his graduation. When Evanor was admitted, his kids were three and one years old. Today, his son is 17 and his daughter is turning 16. You know, the, the staff and one staff member, you know, and, and specifically, he's seen them grow up, you know, so that rapport that he has with my folks, you know, it's, it's, uh, makes you feel special, you know what I mean? Just to know like, hey, you know, the kids are getting big, you know, comments, stuff like that. And then, you know, the little reminders like, hey, you know, talk to your mom about whatever, you know, clothing or something like that. Um, I guess one of the biggest kind of letdowns because there's been so much turnover is that is there's less of that familiarity between, you know, staff and uh, residents. According to a Gallup poll last year, law enforcement is one of the country's most trusted institutions. And in a state that's almost 94% white, where law enforcement receives statewide praise, why too don't correctional officers? That's the question I asked Officer Annie Wren. Generally speaking, what I've seen, what I've heard, what I've learned over the years is that we're just like security guards, um, that we're not equal to police, and that we're not at the same caliber as as them at all. And I think if they serve that one month inside, they'd feel completely different. But I don't feel less than, and I don't feel more than. It's all different. Warden Michelle Edmark told me that some kids grow up wanting to become police officers, but no one wants to work in corrections. To pull the curtain back a little, reporting on this story was really unlike anything I've encountered before. And I'm going to bring reporter Daniela Alley back to help break this down. So I know that we all found this process challenging, communicating with the Department of Corrections, but what was it like for you? So um, to start, I guess there's something that's missing in my piece and all the other pieces in this series, and that's the voices from the department's administration. And for, for me, no one would agree to a recorded interview for this story. And it's, it's really important to have their voices included on a subject like this. Uh, from the time that I sent my initial 
email to DOC until I had my first sit down with any staff. Three months had passed. And just to put this out there, newsrooms and journalists usually don't have that kind of luxury to report in this way. And we were really lucky to have this much runway. Very true. Uh, In fairness to DOC, I don't think this was an attempt to cover up staffing issues. That's public knowledge. I think this had to do with something else. When I talked with the department's commissioner, Helen Hanks, and other DOC administration, they seemed afraid of another kind of feedback loop. One where critical reporting stops people from applying or staying on the job, and the staffing problem never goes away. Frank Logan believes that administration does support its staff, but he says they also have to appease the legislature. You never hear about the assaults, either on inmate or staff. You never hear about how many staff we've actually had drive off the road after working X number of overtime shifts. You never hear about the injuries that staff receive while doing the job. You never hear of anything that would make the department look bad. So what's the solution? It sounds like the legislature is betting on the pay raise and marketing campaign, which seems to be paying off in the short term. And maybe over time, that money will also include better mental health options and training opportunities for COs. The legislature could also reimagine incarceration, specifically a lot less of it. While the state's prison population has slowly declined over the past few years, that is after an explosion that's been happening since the late 80s. Even now, I heard stories of overcrowding. Men with no space of their own, sleeping on bunks in common areas. I heard about the Hancock building within the prison, where eight officers oversee more than 500 men. Frank told me about the time he was watching 192 prisoners with one other officer. And this isn't just a New Hampshire story, not in the age of mass incarceration. Two years ago, West Virginia had to call in their National Guard to secure state prisons during a staff shortage. Last year's prison riot in South Carolina that left seven men dead and jump-started a national prison strike was in part attributed to a severe lack of staffing. I know here in state, county jails are also struggling to hire and retain staff. And in the men's prison, they've even enlisted probation and parole officers to pick up shifts to fill the staffing cracks. And there's really no timeline for when things will get better for officers or people incarcerated. The officers I spoke with hope that the more people that talk about this issue will lead to change, more recognition of the challenges, and less stigma around prisons. But for now, Officer Annie Wren will continue to come in and walk the floors of the men's prison in Concord. She'll break up fights, she'll counsel staff, and she'll do it all shorthanded and overworked. I can't use a name, but I heard we just lost one recently, and and I really, really respected that person, and I'm sad that that they've left. Um, You know, we're a tough kind of people. We do tough things, but we need people that aren't so tough too. They bring a balance. You know, so just because I'm ready to run in there and break up a fight between two men, that, that's, that's me. Um, I'm able to do that, and I will do that. I have done that. Some people, you know, they don't know how to respond right away. It takes some time. But what they do on the floor is nothing short of miraculous to me. They keep it peaceful. They pull people out of negative situations. They're experts at de-escalating. I want those people. I don't want them to leave.
That's a wrap for our series on the state's prison system. A reminder that this series started with you, the listener, reaching out with your curiosities about New Hampshire. And that is what this show exists for, so please use us. If there's something you're curious about, whatever that thing is, it doesn't have to be on prisons, just send it our way. We have two upcoming series we'd love to hear your questions on. First, this summer, we're going to take a road trip to the North Country. What do you want to know about it? Send us your questions. And in the fall, we're giving the mic over to students. What are teens thinking about? What are they dealing with? Social media, surveillance in schools, sex ed and consent. Want to know? Just ask us and report with us. Our email is wordofmouth at nhpr.org. That's wordofmouth at nhpr.org. An extra special thanks for help on today's show to Joseph Jackson from Maine's Prisoner Advocacy Coalition, Officer William Young, Bill Cahill, Ross Cunningham, and Liz Matos. This episode was produced by me, Jimmy Gutierrez, with help from our team, which includes Justine Paradise, Ben Henry, Danielle Alley, and Taylor Quimby. Erica Janik is our executive producer, and Word of Mouth is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.